2: Good morning, it's 8.30 on Monday, January 17th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the story of Martin Luther King Jr.'s visit to a tiny town in the Delta, then an update on COVID-19, and we talk voting rights with Secretary of State Michael Watson. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Most Americans know Dr. King for his involvement in the Montgomery bus boycott and the 1963 march on Washington that culminated in his immortal I have a dream speech. Fewer are aware of King's 1966 visit to the Mississippi Delta, a place that transformed his worldview and served as the wellspring for a wave of activism. Activism that endures today. For that story, we're joined by Hilliard Lackey, who's a professor at Jackson State University. He speaks with MPB's Rob Lane.
3: Can you tell us what it was that brought Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to Marks, Mississippi in 1966? In
4: 1966, Dr. King resumed Jane Meredith's Walk Against Fear. Mr. Meredith decided that he was going to walk from Memphis to Jackson down uh, U.S. Highway 51 to see whether or not a black man in this in that day and time could do so unscathed. But on June 6, 1966, Mr. Meredith was shot at Senatobia, Mississippi, and so Dr. King decided to resumed the walk against fear and turned it into a march. Mr. Meredith never led a march. He always was a loner all by himself. But Dr. King loved an entourage, and so he sent out for local residents to come over and join him. So he, he enticed Mr. Armstead Phipps of Marks, Mississippi, to come. While doing so, Mr. Phipps had a heart attack and died. Dr. King, being a man of the cloth, naturally came to Marks to console the family, comfort the family, and and, and also to preach the funeral at Valley Queen Missionary Baptist Church in Marks on Humphrey Street. While in Marks, Dr. King visited uh, neighborhoods, and for the first time, seemingly in his life, according to many observers, he saw abject poverty up close and personal. As he saw that and he interviewed or questioned a couple of boys riding some makeshift bicycles, like, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. And he quivered them and asked, what are you going to be when you grow up? What do you got in mind? What you going to do? And so one of the boys allegedly said, I don't know. I'll probably be nothing since I'm colored. If I was white or something, I may be a doctor or a lawyer. As to the authenticity of those responses on that occasion, I don't really know. But it was carried on Sunday morning. Well, Dr. King then had a second encounter. And so that second time he decided to go and visit the school the teacher was being uh, queried about the, the students and so on and and then he heard a bell or the time came 12 o'clock and she said excuse me i must give them their lunch so she took out a bag and pulled out an apple and sliced the apple and put slices of apple up on a cracker and handed each child a slice of apple on a cracker, soda cracker. And Martin Luther King Jr. turned to Ralph David Aberneth and said, Ralph, that's their lunch. At that point in time, schools and other agencies could turn down free and reduced meals provided by the federal government If they wanted to, the reason they would want to is that the government required a a posting of a sign that said we will not discriminate based on race, religion, and so on. Many schools across America turned down free and reduced meals for children based upon they didn't want to have integrated schools or even preschool, any kind of school that were receiving their public assistance. Dr. King then decided that he would have a march on Washington in line with the war on poverty, a poor people's campaign, uh, with the centerpiece being 100 wagons pulled by mews and loaded with uh, the agrarian underclass to displace shellcroppers from Marks, Mississippi. And he said, let's do it at the end of the earth. He called Marks, Mississippi the end of the earth. That we were started there. But Dr. King never lived to see what he had inspired. On his way to Marks, Mississippi, stopped off in Memphis, and there he was assassinated on April the 4th. But A little over a month later, May 13, 1968, this time, the Poor People's Campaign did indeed leave Marks, Mississippi, not with 100 wagons, but 28 wagons and 82 uh, passengers who were displaced farmers. But in reality, they only made it to Atlanta, Georgia, and were put on a real train, and on a railroad and, and railroaded on into Washington, D.C. And on June 19, 1968, the Mule train did indeed lead a march on the United States Capitol. You
3: yourself, if I'm not mistaken, grew up in Marx. What do you remember about being a kid there
4: in the 50s, the 60s? What I remember is that nobody voted who was of color. We just thought that was something that was part of being a second-class citizen. We acknowledged that we were second-class. That was something that we understood. Black children couldn't ride the school buses. We had to walk to school, and we walked everywhere, and we had to get our own firewood, that type of thing, and we couldn't look a white person in the eye, and we had to call even little children Mr. and Miss. So personally, if I may, I decided I was going to grow up and leave (laughs) and come back in some form. You know, I had a grandiose plan to come back in in some way and and help to relieve the burden and help my my own family escape from sharecropping, second-class citizenship, and then help my neighbors. That was my dream. And that's what I'm still working on. Tell us a little bit more about that. You mentioned that
3: you still sort of carry with you this feeling of obligation to help out your neighbors, your fellow man in Marks and in the Mississippi Delta. What has changed and what hasn't since 88 people and 29 mules marched on Washington in the late 1960s?
4: Yeah, there was two mules per wagon, so at least 56 mules. Excuse me, I I was a little off with the mule math. (laughs) Yeah, In a way, what has happened is uh, black people have gained political equality. In fact, they have gained political dominancy because blacks outnumbered whites 10 to 1 always in the Mississippi Delta. Blacks now are sheriffs, sheriffs. The mayors, the supervisors, the judges, the district attorney, and anything that's anything and anybody that's elected. That in order for a white person to gain any kind of political stronghold now is that person has to really appeal to black voters. However, it is done. Sometimes it's questionable, but on the other hand, that's the way it is. That has changed. As I grew up, nobody voted. My grandparents never voted. My parents never voted ever Uh, until the 1970s. I think my mother lived long enough to be able to vote. And I know that my mother-in-law, who grew up in that same community, was 96 years old when she voted for the first time here in Jackson, Mississippi. And she voted for Barack Obama as president of the United States, and she was just elated. So that has changed. Nobody ever voted. And now everybody votes. The schools are still, we have a, a, one public school system, and then we have the private academy system. It used to be we had two public school systems, one for blacks and one for whites. Now we've got one public school system, and it is for blacks. And we have a private school system for whites. So that's a significant change. It's not changed when looking at it, but it's changed in terms of the financial support for schools. There's none for the private school and and little for the public school.
2: That's Hilliard Lackey of Jackson State University, reflecting on the past and present of Marks, Mississippi. Coming up, an update on COVID-19. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi is seeing record COVID-19 case counts almost every day, and hospitalizations are following a similar rising trend. MPB's Kobe Vance reports. The
1: Mississippi Department of Health is reporting record new coronavirus cases just about every day. And last week, the record was broken three days in a row. Experts say the rapidly climbing cases should begin to crest near the end of this month, based on research projections. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says cases could have easily exceeded 10,000 in a single day because many patients are not getting tested.
3: We can help turn it down a little quicker if we just moderate behavior, wear a little bit more masks. You know, out in public, I still don't see people wear masks. I don't know if y'all do, but I do because I don't, I don't want to catch it if I can help it. But I, I do hope that we're at the top and, and we're hopeful to see in coming days, maybe a week or so, rounding off and coming coming back down.
1: Experts say their top priority is protecting the state's health care system. One of the best forms to prevent severe illness has been the monoclonal antibody treatment, but the Omicron variant is resistant to most of these medicines. Dr. Dobbs says one of the few antibody treatments that remains effective is in high demand across the nation, and supplies are limited.
3: We only got, I think, 438 doses this week. So if we have 9,000 cases and we get 400 doses in a week, you can understand that it's going to be hard to make, you know, for everybody to get access to it. And so we really do want to use it for people who are highest risk.
1: Dr. Dobbs says booster doses of the coronavirus vaccine also remain an effective way to prevent severe illness and encourages everyone who has not already finished their vaccine series to do so. Cubby Vance, MPB News.
2: Coming up, we talk voting rights with Secretary of State Michael Watson. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. President Biden last week delivered a speech in Atlanta, Georgia, calling on members of the U.S. Senate to pass the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Both bills seek to establish greater federal control over elections. Thus far... They failed to earn a filibuster-proof majority of 60, 60 senators to 40 in their favor, making them essentially dead on arrival. According to Biden, that's unacceptable. Today, I'm making it clear, to protect our democracy, I support changing the Senate rules.
4: Whichever way they need to be changed to prevent a minority of senators from blocking action on voting rights. When it comes to protecting majority rule in America, the majority should rule in the United States Senate.
2: Republican Michael Watson is Mississippi's Secretary of State, making him the state's top elections official. Watson tells MPB's Rob Lane he takes exception to Biden's framing of the voting rights debate as a matter of good versus evil.
0: I think for the most part, what people need to focus on is anybody that's concerned about election integrity is basically now called an enemy of the state. Uh, that, that was just absurd and, and appalling, in a sense. You know, you, you talk about things like voter ID, where there's actually support from both sides of the aisle, uh, folks in, in, the, in America who, who do support voter ID on both sides of the aisle. And so the president, even people in his own party, is now saying you're, you're an enemy of the state if you're for things like voter ID. and uh, You know, unfortunately the rhetoric's gotten, gotten worse. And it's, it's dividing the country as, as we see it happen every day. And that's unfortunate.
3: You know, it's not just voter ID, right? I mean, you know, you're also in Mississippi, for example, looking at, uh, you know, restrictions on mail-in voting that don't exist in other states, restrictions on early voting. How would you defend those? Why are those an important part of Mississippi's elections process?
0: Well, we can talk about each and every one of those different components and why they're important. But you know, one of the things that, that's often forgotten is you look at some of these traditionally blue states who have more restrictive laws, and, and even Georgia and Texas who updated their versions. Yet, you know, they're they're not bad; they're they're, they're okay. It's it's only these new states that just simply tend to be red states that are, uh, you know, enemies of the state, even though their laws are less restrictive than, than places like Delaware and some other states. So, uh, we can go through the components if you'd like to, but again, I think that's an important thing to, to point out: the hypocrisy. Uh, pointing out to to Georgia to Texas when even these traditional states have more restrictive measures uh, that's that's <laughs> laughable and, and again very hypocritical
3: well let's i mean you know I'll, I'll take you up on your offer there let's go through through those two on a little bit more of a granular level not everyone in Mississippi can access mail in voting and not everyone in Mississippi can access early voting you need to qualify under Certain categories, uh, an elderly person or a person with a certain disability. Why are those two restrictions an important part of election security in the state?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, when you talk about vote by mail and absentee, uh, there are a number of areas where we see some concerns. And, you know, by by having that restricted, making sure the only folks that, that absolutely need it are the ones that are allowed to do it. you're you're signing your name, you're you're signing a book. I'm I'm attesting to this that I'm temporarily disabled or I'm, you know, when you're fully disabled, obviously you have a doctor's excuse, but permanently disabled. But these other issues uh, that we're looking at, you know, you you take um, folks that are in nursing homes that are taken advantage of uh, different types of situations where you you need those restrictions. Uh, and, And some of the things that were done in some of those other states Uh, where it has a sense, an element of voter ID, even with these mail-in ballots. I think those measures are important, and I think you're going to see the legislature in Mississippi probably look at that this year. Uh, So we can, again, dialing down into those and why they're important, I can give you examples around the state of things that we have seen even now uh, that that we're working on with district attorneys from different districts. I can't talk about too much, clearly, because those are are, are pending matters, but uh, it is an issue, and it's something that we're going to continue to work on here in Mississippi.
3: I think you'd agree that Mississippi has, looking historically, kind of a spotty track record on voting rights. There were a number of laws enacted throughout the Jim Crow era to attempt to deny African Americans the right to vote. What would your message be, particularly to black Mississippians, to ensure them that that's not what's happening here when Mississippi does have these restrictions in place to, as you say, ensure the security of elections?
0: Yeah, look, I, I think I, I would say that for all Mississippians, citizens, uh, no matter where you're from, your background, your history, uh, it's an important right, one that we're going to defend. And what you're seeing from my office, perfect example, uh, when we we're going around this year uh, to college campuses, registering voters to, to different parts of the state, uh, I want everyone who is legal and who is eligible to vote to be able to vote. And so our office is, is making sure that we're reaching out to, to all corners of the state, uh, again, I don't care your history, your background, who you are. If you're a legal voter, then we want to make it easy as we can uh, while upholding the security of the election on the back end. So it's important for everyone. It wouldn't be specifically to any specific race in Mississippi. It's, it's all Mississippians.
3: Speaking not only about race, but also about political party evidence for a while now has indicated that Democratic voters are a little less sticky in a way, if you will, that when it becomes harder to vote, Democrats become more likely to not vote. What would you say to ensure Mississippians that your motivations in protecting Mississippi's voter laws are not politically oriented?
0: You know, a couple of things to that. If you look back at 2020 and you see the turnout was incredible. And think about all the things that we were facing there. Obviously, COVID right in our face you, you had this a tough election, uh, and, and more Mississippians than ever came out and voted. So, number one, I would say, you, you know, look at what's actually happening, happening on the ground, the turnout that we're seeing. Number two, and this is something that I think is very important that our office has done, is the outreach, going to different places to make sure we're setting up voter registration booths. But not only that, explaining to Mississippians the process. You know, here's what absentee voting looks like, and here's how you participate via absentee voting. Here's what Election Day looks like. Here's what you need to know when you're going to the precinct. Hey, make sure you're checking on your voter registration, that that your records are up to date, Uh, encouraging individuals across the state, no matter who they are. Look, I want you to be engaged, and here's how you engage, by explaining the process, by educating Mississippians on how the election system works here in Mississippi. And I think that's very important. It's something that we're going to continue to do.
3: Two elements of the uh, bills currently in Congress. Now, of course, it doesn't seem as though President Biden has a tremendous amount of confidence that either of them are going to get passed this year. But the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, both of those have provisions that seem to address Uh, What happened in late 2020 when it seemed as though uh, outgoing President Trump may have attempted to pressure state elections officials to reverse the results of elections? Were you troubled by the former president's conduct at that time? And does that remain a concern for you, if so?
0: You know, again, we all saw what happened in different states. But but specifically speaking, I thought Mississippi had a great election and uh, we we had no pressure whatsoever here. Uh, So that's that's what I know, uh, what I've seen and what I've been a part of specifically for me. So that's what I can speak to directly. Uh, But I do think, uh, again, our efforts of reaching out and and making sure that everyone's included is important and we'll continue to do that.
3: Anything else you would like Mississippians to know about this this matter, voting rights, voting laws?
0: You know, I think, again, pointing out that it's it's easier than ever to vote now. and, And we saw that in
3: 2020
0: facing COVID and everything else, yet the numbers still skyrocketed. And That was impressive, Uh, you know, and to be part of that in in my first year in in office, uh, seeing the great work of the circuit clerks and the elections commissioners, uh, people need to understand that that process. You know, Mississippi is a bottom-up state, so the really hard work is done at the local level by our clerks and our commissioners. So I commend each of them and the work that they're doing. Uh, You know, all of us have a role to play in elections, and we want to continue to educate and make sure the Mississippians are participating.
2: Michael Watson is Mississippi's Secretary of State. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of special holiday radio. You can find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. See you tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Have a good day.